0: Pastor Richard and I have recently completed uh, preaching through 1 Peter, and so we thought it would be uh, only fitting and right that we continue on and go through 2 Peter. So today we're going to be starting at the begin of, beginning of 2 Peter, and normally when we would start going through a book, we would be reviewing the, the author and the audience and uh, kind of a broad uh, theme of the book and we would spend a great deal of time unpacking that, but this is a bit of a continuation. This is a little bit different than normal. So um, so we're going to start going through t- 2 Peter. We're going to jump right into the text. Uh, by way of a, a historical side note, this is one of the more contested books in terms of inclusion in the canon of Scripture. So there are some who contend that uh, it shouldn't be included. They they think that it was written by somebody that wasn't even Peter, that it was uh, what they call a a pseudopographical letter, someone written by someone else claimed to be Peter at a later date. Um, they, they cite things like its similarity to the book of Jude or uh, in chapter two, he seems to be addressing some Gnostic teaching which came about 100 years later. Um, and without getting into a full-orbed argument on why they're wrong, uh, I'll, I'll nip this in the bud with one simple statement. Peter wrote this letter. Uh, how do we know this? I mean, there, there's external evidence that we could get into, but just internal evidence. Peter claims to have written this letter. This letter says it was written by Peter. Um, he he recounts firsthand details of the transfiguration, and then and then he talks about personal details about his pending death. Uh, if this was not written by Peter, those are false statements. So uh, our our that would that would not accord at all with what we uh, view how we view scripture. We view scripture as inerrant and complete and without error, and it is included in the canon. It was received by the church, and uh, P- Peter here claims to be the author. So this is not going to be a sermon on inerrancy. Uh, we, are, we are going to get right into the text. Um, this was written by Peter. If there's if there's any doubt about this, we can we can have a longer conversation afterwards, but uh, remember, we're also voting on some membership after the service, so tread lightly. <laughs> this letter was written at the end of Peter's life, and it's a great exhortation to Christians to live godly lives in light of the second coming of Jesus. Uh, today we are going to start by seeing what God has to say to us in the first 15 verses. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn to Second Peter chapter 1. by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly love, and love and brotherly affection with love." richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our lord and savior jesus christ therefore i always intend to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth you have i think it is right as long as i am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since i know that the putting off of my body will be soon and our lord jesus christ uh, as our lord jesus christ made clear to me and i will make every effort so that my departure after my departure you may be able at any time, to recall these things. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Peter begins his letter where we see so many of the epistles begin. Right, He begins his letter with the message of the good news of salvation. He begins his letter with the gospel. He uh, shows uh, right off the bat that God, so, God's sovereign calling and election of his people unto eternal life necessarily leads to lives of personal holiness and brotherly love. He shows that God's sovereign calling and election of his people unto eternal life necessarily leads to lives of holiness and brotherly love. Starting in verses 3 and 4, we see God's purpose of salvation. We see his purpose of salvation. So Peter makes a couple things very clear about God's purpose of salvation. First of all, Salvation is not based upon anything good in of ourselves. It is based entirely upon God and his good purposes. It is God's choice to save a people for himself. In verse 3, he says that salvation is by his divine power, and it is God who called us to his own glory. God is clearly the agent of change here. He is the life-giving creator that can make something out of nothing. He is the one that can breathe life into a valley of dry bones and, and, and create life from spiritually dead and morally corrupt people. He can turn an individual from his wicked ways and turn him toward Christ. It is by his divine power. It's by his effectual calling. It is not of us. We have everything necessary for eternal life because he has decided to give it to us. In verse 4, again, he stresses that the Lord has granted us very great and precious promises. So, so what have we done to deserve these promises? What, what do we bring to the table? The, the only thing we contribute to our own salvation is our sin. We, we only contribute the need for salvation in the first place. Man is born dead, unwilling and unable to turn uh, toward God to conform to his holy standard of what God has demanded from his own creation. Instead of worshiping the good creator God as king, as our sovereign, from birth all of mankind rebels against him. We place ourselves as little gods over our own lives, doing whatever we want, and in doing so we incur judgment from God. We've been hearing Pastor John preach this through Romans, right? So Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Mankind is dead. Mankind is dead and on a path headed for eternal punishment in hell. But God has stepped in and he's plucked us out of the fire. And it says he granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may, be, may be, become partakers of the divine nature. He has sent Christ to live a righteous life under the law, to die an atoning death that we deserve. Christ took God's wrath when he was placed on the cross, paying for our sins, paying a debt that we cannot rectify. He was raised back to life, overcoming the power of death, and he was seated at the right hand of the Father to rule and to reign. Jesus has granted us life through the fulfilled promises in the word. And we did nothing to earn this. This is, this is all of God. This, this was not incumbent upon God. God was not required to do this as our creator. God is completely free. It was by his power and through his calling, he freely grants salvation. He freely grants repentance and faith to those whom he will. And to borrow a phrase that we unpacked in 1 Peter, we are a chosen Race A royal priesthood. We are his people. We are united with him. We are partakers of this divine nature, freed from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. God has his good purpose in mind for calling sinners to himself. Beyond this, we see in these two verses that his salvation is ultimately for his glory. We are are given all things necessary for godliness. We are called to his own glory and excellence so that we become partakers of this divine nature. God is glorified through saving sinners, and this includes the entire process. This is not just uh, him being glorified when a sinner uh, is is justified, Um, but God, God is also glorified when Christians humbly submit to him, when they grow in holiness, when they are sanctified, when they grow more and more like Christ, until one day they are glorified, Sinless and with our Savior. This, this is what Peter is getting at in this passage. We are saved, uh, and that brings, brings God glory, and we are saved unto good works, and that brings God glory too. We have been granted all that is necessary for life and godliness, and we are partakers in the divine nature. We see that God transforms hearts and desires, and, and uh, he enables us to progressively and continually reject sin and treasure Christ this will be consummated when we are raised again in glorified bodies uh, and are with Jesus for eternity. Um, He has given us refuge from the corruption of this world and he has provided everything that we need. God has done this. It It is his good purpose in salvation and it brings glory to himself. Peter pointed to God's purpose and salvation, and then he goes on to show how, the, how this changes the Christian. In verses 5 through 7, he describes the effects of salvation. He describes the effects of salvation. In verse 5, we read, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. This is what shows up in the Christian life. You, you bump a Christian, this is what should flow out of them. This is what people should recognize you as, right? So, so first of all, in this list, we see a little bit of structure. What does he start with? Starts with faith, right? What does he end with? He bookends it with love. So, so as a Christian, this makes sense, does it not? We start with faith. As a Christian, you don't start by cleaning yourself up. You don't say, okay, I'm going to be virtuous, I'm going to be loving, I'll be a little steadfast, um, and, and then I'll have faith. This, this starts with God granting us repentance and faith. And without that, without the foundation of, of, of faith in Christ, none of the rest of it happens. Right? None of the rest of that is what's going to be uh, something that comes out of us naturally. Uh, we start with faith, and we end with love. This is the goal of the Christian life, right? Love God and love neighbor. We see in Romans 13, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. And In Galatians 5, it says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. One word, you should love your neighbor as yourself. We start with faith, and, and we end with love. This, this, this makes sense. Um, beyond that, we don't see um, a, a real clear structure or progression here. Many of these things are interrelated, right? So, so we see virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and godliness. So I'm going to lump those together and, and say it's like personal holiness, right? So, so virtuous lives, lives that reflect the character of God. We're, we are to increase in knowledge. So growing deeper in knowledge of Christ as revealed in his word. This, this is something that should be a, a part of a Christian's life. We are to live self-controlled lives, right? We're, we're not to be satisfying the sinful desires that are natural to man. We are to be living a self-controlled life, control, uh, in control of the things that we do and the things that we say. We're called to be steadfast. This is a lifetime of faithfulness to Christ. This is not a one-time event. This is something that we are called to over the course of our entire life. We're called called finally here then to godliness. So God has revealed his righteous standard in his word. Uh, These are the things that should mark a Christian. This is is personal holiness that should mark those who uh, say that they believe in Christ. And, And then he finishes with brotherly affection and love. Uh, ultimately, we're supposed to have love for one another. Christians are supposed to be loving people. Uh, so, our community should be marked by love. Crossway should be marked by love. We should be loving those that we sit next to, right? We should be looking around the room and saying, I love these people. This is my spiritual family here. We should also be loving to those outside of our group. We should be uh, m- marked by love, and this should look very different than what we see in the world. All of these are the effects. Of salvation that God has provided to us, it, it, it is no accident, right? That this lo- this list looks a lot like what we see a, uh, in Galatians five is the fruit of the Spirit. There it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Cr- Christians are saved by God. He grants us life and He gives us His Spirit. So so these attributes, these personal attributes are the result of what has happened in our lives. So so as we read this section, do not gloss over the beginning of verse 5. What does it say there? We are to make every effort. Make every effort. He is calling us to make an effort to strive after these things. In in recent times, as, as a bit of a rejection to legalism, and, and in a noble effort to preach God's grace in, in all of life, we have, uh, we have uh, seen the pendulum swing probably too far. Um, indeed, we, we cannot save ourselves, and, and works righteousness is a terrible disease, and, and that should be destroyed. We uh, bring nothing to the table uh, to save ourselves, but but for the, for some they they have taken this too far. One uh, former pastor I was just reading about this week uh, had written an article on the Good Samaritan, and he completely botches part of the application of this of this section. So you recall in Luke ten there was a lawyer and he was seeking to justify himself and. He, uh, Jesus told him that the, the, that the law was to love God and love his neighbor. And so he smugly asks, right, who is my neighbor? So, so Jesus says, all right, you want to play this game? We'll, we'll destroy everything that you're thinking right now about neighbor. He takes him through the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And so he concludes this passage by saying, go and do likewise. Right? So, so, so his question was on, how do I inherit eternal life? It's, his question was on justification. How, how is it that I am justified before God? And Jesus says, well, you must obey the law. And the guy says, okay, well, I think I'm obeying the law because I'm loving people generally, but you know, uh, I want to get off on a technicality. Who's my neighbor? Jesus destroys his idea of what a neighbor was. Um, but then Jesus says, go and do likewise. So, so Jesus is, is teaching a couple things here. One, Jesus is the only true good Samaritan, right? Jesus is the only one that that obeys the law perfectly. Uh, the passage, um, the the the, uh, the passage is first and foremost going to be a Christocentric passage, a Christ-centered passage, a passage that teaches us uh, teaches us what uh, Christ is like. Um, so on on one hand, um, this pastor was saying that. That's all this is about. And you can't do that. You can't obey the law perfectly. Uh, Christ has done that. And that's where he ended the argument. Um, The problem with that is Christ says, Go and do likewise. So he's teaching us, yes, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the true and better good Samaritan. He always obeys perfectly. We trust him, and we know that we are right before God because of what Jesus has done. But Jesus calls us to mimic him. Jesus calls us to a life that follows in his footsteps, to a life, because of our faith in him, that will obey him, and calls us to go and do likewise. Peter is calling us to real effort in this section. Like Christ, he is telling us to go and do likewise. He's telling us not to sit on our laurels, not to rest and our lives will automatically be pleasing to God. We are to pursue love and holiness as that is pleasing to the Lord. And it is just the normal and natural response of the Christian. This, This is not... Uh, justification, this is not the basis for our salvation, but this is sanctification and this is the effect this is the effect of our salvation we are to look like our Heavenly Father and this does not happen by accident we've been made God's children right? when you have a child your child looks like you to some degree or another and we are God's children we are going to grow up and we should be looking like Him to some degree or another We diligently pursue godliness in this life, knowing that one day we will be perfected with him. God's sovereign calling and election of his people unto eternal life necessarily leads to lives of personal holiness and brotherly love. God's own purpose is behind our salvation. Lives of holiness are the effect of the salvation. And third in this passage, Peter gives us the basis for the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. He says, starting in verse 8, "...for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall." For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the crux of this passage of Scripture. And and we must navigate these waters carefully. Peter has been laying a foundation. He's been laying down the basis for our salvation. And then he's uh, expounding on the effects. And now he's getting to the heart of the matter. Salvation effects are necessary works are necessary so before you vote me out as a heretic at our next members meeting let's, let's let's talk through this right we're saved by grace alone faith alone and christ alone we're bringing nothing and and works do us nothing right they they, they don't earn us anything we are dead and god breathes life into us we don't make ourselves alive so let's be queer, clear he awakens ourselves spiritually. And that is not just so we can affirm that Jesus is God, but so we can and so we can live with Him forever. He He awakens us spiritually in the fullest sense. We are alive in Christ, living for His glory. We are saved unto a life of good works. And and these works are necessary. They're they're not necessary in the sense that they are the cause. They are not a required payment that grants us real salvation or full salvation. Uh, that was accomplished in full by Christ alone. But true faith is always accompanied by tangible works, necessary works. Peter says that a life that has been changed in this way will have uh, evidence of this miraculous conversion. So, so first he says that these qualities will be ours. They will be ours, right? So so faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness godly love, brotherly affection, or godliness brotherly affection and love so those things will necessarily be true of a christian it's not the basis for our salvation but it is always the effect of a true on a true believer secondly not not only will these qualities be ours but these qualities will be increasing so we're never to be stationary as a christian you know we've talked a lot about here about moving to the right going from not knowing god to to conversion, to growing in godliness, to becoming a mature Christian and then ultimately being glorified with him. Growing in love and holiness keeps us from an unfruitful life and it gives evidence to the fact that we have been converted. The opposite's true also, right? The opposite's true. He says that for those who lack these qualities, he's like what? He's like, he's like a blind man who does not see reality at all. He has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There is no evidence no evidence to show that he has been changed. John, uh, the Apostle John expounds on this in his first letter when he says, They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that, they, that it might become plain that they uh, all are not of us. Those who pursue a lifetime of sin after a claimed conversion experience don't give any evidence of truly knowing the Lord. There should be no assurance for them that they will experience eternity with him. Tom Schreiner rightly says that a libertine lifestyle contradicts a profession of faith. Building on this, Peter exhorts us us to diligently confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is the application. This This is where it comes to a head. This is what he's pointing his audience to. On one hand, he is telling Christians, to be diligent, to think through their salvation? Have you been changed? Does does your life show evidence that you are a child of the king? Would someone from the outside looking in at your life think, that guy is different? Or would they say, that person just blends in with everything else. I don't see any difference at all. Do you trust in Christ with the entirety of your life? Does this manifest itself in your life in real, tangible ways? This is, this is not works righteousness, but this is an honest assessment, looking at my life and saying, okay, what, what, what do I see here? Determine if there is evidence to support that which you claim has happened in your heart. And even as he is calling us to be diligent to look at our lives, he is reaffirming that the change does not come from us. We don't change ourselves. Right? He calls it our calling and election. This is all of God. He is telling us to confirm our calling and election. God has done the saving work, and we cannot earn that. He has elected us. He has changed us. This does not pit, pit man's responsibility against God's sovereignty, but rather it holds them tightly in tension. We are responsible to trust Christ because we cannot be good enough to, trust, or to do uh, good works on our own. We are called to strive for holiness, We are called to honestly assess our lives and determine if we are who we say we are. But God is the one who does the saving. He is the one that does the changing, and he is the one that receives all the glory. So in humility, we recognize him as king, and we submit. Peter finishes this section with a bold statement. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so what does he mean by in this way? So, so it's careful that we walk through this passage right. We are not saved by being virtuous. We are not saved by being self-controlled. But he says, in this way, you will enter eternal life. So what does he mean? Sim- simply put, we will enter eternal life because we are a Christian. We will enter eternal life because we are one of God's children. And all of this, all of that, uh, it entails. We, we, are, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. And this necessarily results in lives of holiness and love. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without without which no one will see the Lord. That That is not Christ's holiness without which someone will see the Lord. What he's talking about there is personal holiness. And he is not saying strive for personal holiness so you can earn your way there. But what he is saying is be a Christian and all that entails we're justified by Christ's works alone Christ's work alone we enter into the eternal kingdom by being Christians by the reality that we are children of God thinking through your life considering and assessing your priorities and actions and then aligning that with what we see in scripture gives us assurance of salvation We trust that Christ has done everything for us, and we are justified before the judge of the world based not on what we have done, but what he has done for us. And we look to our lives as evidence that that change has occurred in us. We need new hearts. We need to be a new person. We have to be careful that we do not obscure the order here. We do not look to ourselves to be assured because we are so good. Rather, we humbly look to see what Christ has done to us and how this is currently being played out in our normal activities, in our daily activities. So a couple things. We need to be careful to guard against pride here, right? It can be real easy to say, look at what I'm doing. I must be good. God's lucky to have me on his team. We are also exhorted here to examine our own lives, um, to to, to examine our own lives, and not to go around confirming other people's calling and election right? So this is not a call for you to set yourself up as judge. This is a call for you to look inside of yourself at some introspection. Uh, Peter is um, expecting here that if we are truly his, we are going to say, yes, I'm not perfect, but I see that God has changed me. And that should, that should cause humility to swell up within us. I was this way. I couldn't make myself good, God came and he changed me. And I'm not perfect now, but I love him and I'm serving him. We are told to confirm our calling and election by examining ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves, rooting out sin and striving to be the Christians that God has called us to be. God's sovereign calling and election of his people unto eternal life necessarily leads to lives of personal holiness and brotherly love. We've seen God's purpose in salvation. We've seen the effects of salvation. We see our assurance of salvation. And finally, Peter concludes here with a reminder of salvation. So verse 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort after my departure to be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter concludes this segment um, with a statement that he he intends to constantly be reminding them of these gospel truths. He He has one message to preach, and that is Christ crucified. He will ground and pound with this good news. This is what his readers need to hear. And this is what we need to hear. This is what we need to hear every week. We need to constantly be reminded of the gospel. Christ has pulled you from a train wreck. You were on a path, on a track, headed to eternal punishment. And his love has graciously and lovingly sacrificed his son in order uh, that you might be forgiven. He has given you a gift beyond measure. This glorious good news is only good if it is true in your life. This is why we need to be constantly reminded we are saved by grace, we are saved through this good news, and we are sanctified by applying this good news to every part of our life. We need to be stirred up by this reminder. God's sovereign calling and election of his people unto eternal life will necessarily lead to lives of good works. We are called to examine our lives we are called to confirm a calling and election. All right, so, 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 so one question this morning, are you living like this is real? Uh, are you living like this is real? When you read a passage like this, does it cause you to do some serious introspection? Do you, do you live like this is real? I mean, consider the stakes here. We, we are only on this earth for a short time. So 40, 60, 80 years from now, uh, nobody will be here, right? We'll all be gone. And in the grand scheme of things, that, that's no time at all. The reality is eternity hangs in the balance. The future is the binary. Right? There's two options. There is an eternity of bliss with our Savior for those who love him. We submit to King Jesus now, and we are saved with him forever. The other option is an eternity of suffering and punishment Because we have rejected our Creator. There is a real place called hell. It is forever and it is horrible. We are called to reflect on our lives. Peter's plea is to Christians Are you striving for holiness? Do your lives show that you love one another? Not to earn salvation, but to give evidence to a change. Do you love God and love others, giving evidence to true conversion? Do you live like this is real? Heaven and hell are real places. They're true places. And with them, there is no end. There's, there's no expiration date. Are we living like this is real? Or have we grown tired in our walk with the Lord? And don't, don't go away from this passage and forget what it says, but take an honest assessment of your life before the Lord. Only in Christ will you find comfort and peace. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are a God who owed us nothing and gave us everything. Father, your son paid the penalty for sin. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and he calls us to a changed life in response. Father, I pray that we do live like this is real, I pray that we take a look inside of ourselves to confirm our calling and election with you. That we don't rely on a one-time conversion experience and neglect you for the remainder of our lives. But I pray that we live out our lives in faithfulness and holiness to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray that we are obedient. We pray that we are changed by your word.